Today's passage is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it will not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. All right, before we begin, some of you, <coughs> Danny, <coughs> uh, may be wondering when I'm going to take down these Christmas lights. First of all, if you assume the answer is never, then you'll be pleasantly surprised no matter when that is. Secondly, Jesus said, thou shalt not judge, so don't ruin my fun. By the way, Danny did not know I already wrote that out before he came in today and judged me for still having them up, so I'm feeling quite pleased with myself right now. But anyway, now that we got that out of the way, um, <laughs> this week's parable uh, builds on a subtle theme we've been exploring since starting the sermon series a few weeks ago. And that theme can be summarized in this way, that the parables of Jesus are both illustrations of his gratuitous love and invitations to find life therein. The parable of the sower illustrated how free and gracious God is to offer seed, even in soil that is too hard to receive it. And he invites us to imbibe that life-giving, fruit-bearing grace by receiving the word or seed that cultivates it. The parables of the growing seed and the mustard seed both illustrate how God is the one who grows his kingdom and that we are then invited to find both the permission to rest and the freedom to contribute to that kingdom growth without having to bear the weight of ultimate responsibility. If you didn't read today's passage, you'll definitely want to hit pause and do so now, because if you did read it, then you know that that theme may not be terribly obvious here. And that's an understatement. It is there, and you'll see it by the time we're done, though it is definitely a, a lot more, uh, it's more blunt and in your face than the first two. So let's dive in and start with Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23. The first question we need to ask after reading this section is, who are those who say, Lord, Lord, yet Jesus somehow claims to not know? To answer that, let's look at the four data points or identity markers that Jesus uses to describe them. First off, it says that they're doing this in Jesus's name. Now, doing something in someone's name implied that they were an authority. Rabbis would teach in the name of whatever rabbi they studied under when they were still learning. Side note, the crowd's 
uh, notice that Jesus did not do this. Instead, he said, truly I say to you, which was why verses 28 through 29 say they were astonished at his teaching. All that to say that these people are, number one, those who follow Jesus as their rabbi or teacher. Secondly, it says they call him Lord. The Greek word here for Lord, kurios, would have been painfully familiar to his audience because as Roman subjects, they would have been pressured to proclaim Kaiser Kurios or Caesar is Lord as a confession of allegiance. But here, this is key. When Romans say that particular phrase, it does not mean or carry the meaning of Caesar is king or even Caesar is emperor, but Caesar is a God. Caesar is divine. So when Jesus is describing those who will call him Lord, he is describing those, and this is number two, those who bow to Jesus as divine. Thirdly, doubling the word like this, as in it's saying Lord, Lord, implies an intensity of emotion or sincerity. It's, a, it's kind of a literary or rhetorical uh, uh, signal or signpost that, that connotates that. They don't just follow Jesus as rabbi then or bow to him as divine in a half-hearted way, but in a sincerely impassionate, sincere and passionate way. There is, in other words, there's nothing lukewarm about their zeal. Thus, these are, number three, those who praise Jesus full-throatedly. Fourth, and finally, Jesus says that they cite a proven track record. They offer a, a spiritual resume that includes all kinds of things, prophesying, casting out demons, and doing, quote, many mighty works. In other words, they were actively engaged in ministry. They could even be pastors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thus, they are, number four, those who serve Jesus in word and deed. So let's get this straight. You can have right doctrine, strive to change the world. You can volunteer in church and ministry. You can give generously and even preach God's word. And Jesus may not respond with, well done, good and faithful servant, but with, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. <laughs> this is a horrifying plot twist. How could those who in every quantifiable way didn't just seek but succeeded in serving God, how could they not be saved? How could someone who checks every single box for what it means to live in a Christian way and then some but still not actually be a Christian? In short, Jesus is exposing what one commentator describes as how close to spiritual reality one may come while knowing nothing of its fundamental character. It is in light of that pernicious danger that Jesus is trying to stop us in our tracks, that he is pleading with us to see the cliff off which we're about to walk. That reality and how easily we could be blind to it should scare us. It should stop us in our tracks. In fact, if you're watching this and you're not at least a little worried or wondering whether you are in fact saved, then you are likely exactly who Jesus is trying to jolt awake. Do not take for granted how easy it is to confuse the spiritual gifts lifted he listed here for the spiritual fruit that comes from knowing Jesus. Now, this begs the question, 
what then is a Christian? How do I know I'm not one of the people Jesus is trying to wake up? If, if these aren't the kingdom qualifications, then what are they? In short, and in answer to that, I'm going to intentionally leave you hanging. I'm going to insist on not resolving the tension that you're feeling right now because, well, Jesus didn't. Instead, he kind of answers that question by, by telling a parable that forces us to press into our discomfort and ask even more uncomfortable questions. Again, we'll, we'll get there, but we need to act, dig into the actual parable in order to do so. This parable, this parable of the builders, is the third of three in a series of back and forth teachings where Jesus first drops a, a kind of rhetorical hammer and then illustrates that principle with a micro parable contrasting two subtly but essentially different pictures of that principle. Jesus builds on verses 21 through 23 by contrasting a wise builder with a foolish builder. Each builds a house that is by every discernible measure identical to each other in both outward appearance and ordinary function. There's no way to tell a difference between the two. In short, the metaphor is basically describing two lives that are on the surface as indistinguishable from each other as their houses are. The difference in foundation wouldn't have been terribly obvious either. You see, the whole region around the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, had an extremely arid climate and sandy soil. The very ground the crowds were sitting on to hear Jesus teach this parable would have been densely packed and baked hard by the sun. They would not have pictured this foolish builder locating his house on the beach right next to the lake, much like we probably do when we read these words. But in fact, a reasonably safe distance away on seemingly firm earth. So even the placement of the house wouldn't have at least seemed foolish on the outset, at least not until the storm comes. During the rainy season, this entire region gets kind of a, a, a watery aquatic reset and anything built on that sandy soil would find the foundation crumbling underneath them, even a good distance away from the beach. Here's the point that Jesus is trying to make with all this. It is, not oft, it is often not until an abnormally destructive event tears down our sense of self-worth that the faulty foundation or the source of dignity, value, and worth that we've built our lives upon is exposed as, in fact, worthless doesn't serve the purpose a foundation is supposed to. But it's, it's still one thing to describe that reality, and it's another to feel it. And this is too important to move on from too quickly. So I'm going to spend the rest of our time doing my best to hammer that point home on a more existential level. Not just tell you about it, but let's go there together. This, by the way, is literally how I became a Christian. I didn't grow up in the church. I know I've said that before. My dad didn't raise me on the Sermon on the Mount or Jesus and the 12 Disciples, but on the Lord of the Rings and Arthur and his 12 Knights of the Round Table. It sounds lame now and more than a little nerdy, I know, but chivalry was my gospel, and I saw myself as its apostle. In short, I was a good person, and even when my, good, my actions weren't good, my good intentions were enough, I thought, to make up the difference. <sighs> In college, the cataclysmic storm of a really bad breakup in which I was responsible for a lot of hurt 
It swept my self-worth away like a pile of twigs in a stiff breeze, exposing a worthless foundation of good intentions. And I say worthless because I saw more fully than ever before how my good intentions were in fact not good, but disastrously selfish despite all the spin I had filtered them through. I then spent the following year in a depression caused by the disturbing realization that my good intentions, never mind my words and deeds, were as much a fantasy as the books that shaped them. So much of what we thought was stable and reliable to depend on, so many assumptions and foundations we'd built our lives on were swept away in 2020 and far more easily than any of us might have thought possible. Many of those who said, Lord, Lord, with full sincerity discovered the foundation upon which they built their dignity, value, and worth was a culturally captive version of Christianity. And that is the case on the cultural right and left. This knife cuts both ways. It takes a storm to expose a faulty foundation. And while personal storms or crises happen all the time, rarely does it happen all at the same time for so many of us. Here's another example. I was catching up with a friend this week. She was describing how she has been wrestling with this weird sort of like really deep discouragement recently. It's something that she's experienced before, but not for a while. And there, there never seems to be any specific cause for it either. And when she steps back and looks at how her life is going right now, it's actually really good, all things considered. And even comparatively outside of the usual pandemic stress that we're all tired of talking about. She said she doesn't understand why, but she painted a picture of feeling increasingly overwhelmed and anxious of just, just being a failure, of being unworthy. I could see that very fear bubbling up and leaking out of her as she described it. So I encouraged her to do something that I'd like to encourage you to do right now as you're listening to this and watching this. <sighs> Take a long, deep breath. And this may sound a little weird, but humor me. I want you to picture yourself in a small rowboat in the middle of a massive lake. Okay? There's no wind, no waves, no oars. You can't tell how far from shore you are because there's a thick fog making it impossible to see horizon, a horizon of any kind. In other words, you're stuck. You have to sit in it. With the it being whatever grief fear or stress or anxiety you've been avoiding or not letting yourself feel the full weight of. You got that? You feel it? Okay. Now, I want you to picture Jesus sitting in the boat with you. Do you see him? Where is he sitting? Be specific. Is he next to you or on the other side of the boat? What's he doing? How is he looking at you? Can you tell what he's thinking right now? Is he saying anything to you? When I asked my friend that last question, she said, I don't know, I, I guess he's telling me to come take a walk with him, you know, like out on the water, like, like Peter or something. I asked a few more questions and we talked about a few more specifics, but then I explained to her that 
the way we think Jesus looks at us is also the way we see ourselves. And we cannot see ourselves differently until we see how differently that is from how Jesus actually looks at us in love. In other words, I told her, why do you think you need to be able to walk on water before Jesus wants to be with you? My point is this. A foundation built on the strength of our faith, the ability of our problem solving, the degree of education we have, how much wealth we have, how many possessions we own, the house we own, our political convictions, even on dedicated and faithful ministry or whatever being able to walk on water represents for you. It's all just sand. Tim Keller says, in their own way, every religion functionally calls you to repent of your bad deeds, but only Christianity calls you to repent of your good deeds too. Why? Because we build our identity on them. We do good things for selfish and self-righteous reasons. That's the whole point of, of verses 21 through 23. It's all polluted by vanity. It's all sand, and none of it is a firm foundation on which to build a sustainable or satisfying or saving life. So what do you do with that? How in the world do we build our lives on an identity that is, actually on a, that is actually a firm foundation. Well, in reading the passage beforehand, you might have noticed that this parable concludes the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very last part. But you may not have noticed that it is connected by the theme of kingdom with the very introduction on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 2 through 11. The first line of the Beatitudes reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom. The kingdom that those who did all these things were not able to go into because Jesus didn't know them. But the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. This clue tells us that it is not the greatness of our deeds done in Jesus' name, but the greatness of Jesus' name that qualifies us for the kingdom of heaven. Or to quote the classic hymn, Come Ye Sinners, the only fitness he requires is to know your need of him. The difference between those who do enter the kingdom and those who do not is whether we confess Lord, Lord, from a place of seeing our own spiritual poverty apart from Lord Jesus. Or to, let me put it even more bluntly. Yes, to err is human, but so is minimizing catastrophic sin and chronic selfishness with pithy BS. The Sermon on the Mount is a three-chapter discourse explaining how God's law is just the floor of the house we build, not the ceiling. Thou shalt not murder is the bare minimum, but love thy enemies is the aspirational ideal. But that said, still, Jesus' purpose was not primarily ethical, that was just the rhetorical shape of the storm he brought to expose his and our faulty foundation. Their and our faulty foundation. Jesus cares too much, in other words, to allow spiritual counterfeits like to err as human 
or nobody's perfect, or spiritual but not religious, or I'll just have good intentions to stand in for the only foundation worthy of building an identity upon, Lord Jesus himself. Poor in spirit, then, is not sanctified jargon for discouraged by circumstances. It's a poetic way of summarizing the very thing this parable calls its hearers to stop avoiding and give more attention to. Blessed are those who have had their hearts excavated by seeing the truth of their spiritual poverty, for they will experience the wealth of knowing Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who have come to the end of themselves, for that is the beginning of grace. Blessed are those who have had their unworthiness exposed by a storm for the cost of rebuilding on a firm foundation is worth it and has already been paid in full. Blessed are those who sit in foggy darkness, for they will see a great light, a light that both exposes our brokenness and illuminates our belovedness. Blessed are the exhausted who can't even anymore for they will know and embrace that literally cannot wait to offer comfort and peace. No matter, never mind walking on water as a prerequisite. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer, contribute, or merit for their own dignity, value, and worth. For we will know the security of self-worth built upon the person and work of Christ. I'll end with this. What brought me out of that year-long depression was my best friend from high school who had since become a Christian introducing me to the story of someone who also failed miserably. And not only in living up to his good intentions, but in having them in the first place and not having them in the first place, which is King David. David, you see, had his, his close friend and trusted advisor murdered and covered it up as a battlefield accident, all to hide getting his, his friend's wife pregnant after wickedly abusing his royal authority to make her sleep with him. I remembered telling my friend that sure, there is a little comfort in knowing someone else has failed even more epically than I did, but not that much. And it was then that my friend pointed out to me in 1 Samuel 13, 14, where God refers to David as, quote, a man after my own heart. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a, a spiritual way of saving, saying someone, like having good intentions. But my, my friend pointed out that this was before David had done any of those really terrible things. God knew full well that he would have straight up evil intentions in the future, so that couldn't be what he was getting at. So what does that actually mean? It means this. David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he had godly intentions or because he was so faithful that he never sinned or failed. He was a man after God's own heart because he was so aware of his heart's need for God that he chased after God's own heart. He was hungry for God because he was so unsatisfied by his own attempts to find nourishment on his own. He was painfully aware of his own spiritual poverty, and it was that bankruptcy that fueled a lifelong pattern of repentance every time his debts were exposed. David was a broken man, but one who understood a precious truth encapsulated by that first beatitude. We can stare into the abyss of our sinful brokenness 
because God sees us through eyes of faithful belovedness. Let me say that again. We can stare into the abyss of our own sinful brokenness because God sees us through eyes of faithful belovedness. The more we see how pervasive our sin is, the more gracious and unearned we experience our belovedness to be. And therefore, the more beautiful and sufficient a life built on Christ becomes. If this stirs something up for you, know that we are all in the same boat, struggling to see Jesus and needing to see how he sees us more clearly. We can't actually do that on our own without one another's help. So just let us, let me know if you need that help, you want that help, because this church cares for you and is here for you. Amen.